0: Remind me, Ash, did we set a date for this episode?
1: I don't know. I think we might have a conversation about that, way back in the mists of time.
0: The mists of time? Yes, so what that really means is that our next episode will be coming out. Don't say a date. Don't say a date. On the 7th of January.
1: (laughs) Can it just be beard noise? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> it could Just Don't, don't mention dates
1: I'm still really paranoid about dates and estimates. We need to talk about estimates as well, don't we?
0: Yeah, we do So we can get to
1: the bottom of my rampaging paranoia About saying when something will be done Maybe it's because I'm
0: paranoid about
1: When, when, when people say things will be done What they mean is that they're going to have done some programming Which year was that, Ian? <laughs> oh,
0: I'm, I'm fairly sure it must have been very recent
1: Before COVID, right?
0: I think that might have been December 2019 when we said that. A good year. <laughs> yes, there were five episodes of what a lot of things in it. There was.
1: The statements about estimates still still hold true as well.
0: That might be the wrongest estimate I've ever made. That's okay.
1: I don't think it's the wrongest estimate I've ever made.
0: <laughs> well, you were very <laughs> wisely not making an estimate.
1: As what, in, what? the wrongest estimate you could ever make is making an estimate.
0: That that was my mistake, was making an estimate.
1: Yeah, and we all paid for it. In well, lost hopes and dreams.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, fortunately, we have no project manager because they would have had to have fallen on their sword or something. Yeah, that's true. Where did we go?
1: I had to venture out into the into the world of money-making. Alas... The podcast world takes a little while to get going, so I just needed to regenerate a fund or two, and now I'm back.
0: I'm very happy to hear it. Where have you been? Well, I have been unfaithful. I have made another podcast. Yeah, that's true. In the interim period. That's true. This one um, won't be the same. (laughs) It's far more daft and pointless than this one.
1: Yeah. This could be equally daft and pointless.
0: I'd like to think it's more daft than pointless. I have some follow-up from the previous episode. Can you remember what the previous episode was about? No. Christmas? (laughs) It it did come out about Christmas. It wasn't about Christmas. It wasn't about Christmas,
1: no. no. I seem to remember talking about your digital death.
0: Yes. (laughs) Particularly macabre. Yes. And that is what the follow-up was about. Although I'm not sure how helpful you'll find it. Oh, is this my Twitter handle? It is your Twitter handle. That I
1: desperately covered that Hannibal Lecture. <laughs> I,
0: I did go and look at it the other day and it still has a man whose single tweet is very condemnatory of a particular footballer. Mm. Very judgmental. Very judgmental. Um So uh, our listener, Mark from Basingstoke, who actually uh, was named in the previous episode as well, but obviously that was some time ago, so he and we might not remember. But his angle on this was that, as you have lots of documentation proving that your name is Ash Winter, you should perhaps just phone up Twitter and say, I've lost the password to my account, Ash Winter. Please, can you give it to me?
1: Well, I have to prove that I still think that Samir Nasri is a one of them. <laughs> what happens if they ask me that question? Well, Have you, has your opinion changed think... of Samir Nasri? <laughs> I know he's a wonderful chap.
0: Yes, I think you should definitely mm-hmm. go for the positive yep, in that. Absolutely. I did feel as though uh, you might stumble if they wanted to know what your email address was when you registered the account.
1: It might be Samir Nasri's email address.
0: In fact maybe it's him maybe, maybe it's his self account picked your name as a kind of fake name yeah. so who would be called so Ash he... winter
1: <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> how ridiculous
0: <laughs> I think you may have nailed it then hmm. I guess it's up to you you could try that if you want Seems I think my honest, um, it?
1: my general interest and in desire for that twitter handle has diminished a little because I was quite excited that it would be in like the first sweep of twitter reclaiming handles but apparently not I don't know if my status cake alert for that Twitter handle is still running. I hope it is. I haven't logged into status cake to check for a little while. But that's how excited I was about that Twitter handle. But I think my excitement has diminished. As in, I've not set up monitoring and alerting around that
0: further Twitter handles. Did your monitoring and alerting uh, use Twitter's APIs to register the account for yourself if it detects it goes did No, away? It, didn't ha- it wasn't self healing. <laughs>
1: That's still in my personal run book to wait for that alert to go off and then to manually fix it to be automated later. Yes, when there's time, when also, there's when there's fewer features to deliver.
0: Well, who knows though? There might be a further Ash Winter lurking in the sidelines, mm. who's just slightly more, a bit more on diligent it. than you,
1: a bit more on it, a bit more, a bit more awake and aware. Well, good luck to them, is what I say.
0: Yes. Yes. Good luck to Ash Winters everywhere. Absolutely. If you get to that Twitter handle before me,
1: you obviously wanted it more than I did.
0: Yes, yes.
1: And I'm not going to argue with you. Some
0: follow-up. There you go. Mm. Thanks, Mark. Given that this is called What A Lot Of Things, we should talk about some things. Yes, let's talk about some things.
1: Ian, you were going to go first.
0: Oh, To monopolise the airwaves.
1: Begin the internal external monologue.
0: My thing is is another book and I realize i I've now done this twice in a row because the last same episode book. that no, was a, a mere mere 2 weeks ago or whatever it was hmm. was um was also a book. Uh so and I have read quite a lot of books in between now and then um in between now and then in between then and now. <laughs> this book is called the hard thing about hard things, okay, and it's written by um, Ben Horowitz, who's a venture capitalist, um, who's one of the partners of Andreessen Horowitz, which is a, a venerable venture capital firm, and it's about how to be a CEO. It's quite good. I thought it was quite interesting. Okay, I don't think I am going to be a CEO particularly, but you have your I did own Interesting. That's true. You can declare yourself CEO. That's true.
1: Isn't that how most CEOs
0: do it? (laughs) They just say, I'm the CEO. I'm the CEO now. Uh, The problem with this as a thing is it's probably about six things because the book is about quite a lot of different things. So it talks about when companies go wrong, talks about one of the chapters is called Taking Care of the People, the Products and the Profits in That Order.
1: See, I always have like a intake of breath when I see such statements because so I just think it's a nice thing to write in a book. So yeah, I, I must admit I do have quite a lot of cynicism about such such statements. But you know, there are there are other examples. Is it Dan Price, the the CEO who drops his wages from a million to seventy thousand dollars, and everyone got the same? Basically, everyone gets paid the same in the company, pretty much. Oh, there's a minimum level of seventy thousand dollars.
0: Yeah, I do think I remember that. And actually, they were very serious about that, even down to people in what might be thought of as quite lowly job mm. roles. Some CEOs are different than others.
1: Most CEOs that I've met, they're kind of necessarily psychotic um, in some ways, <laughs> because you probably wouldn't like volunteer yourself for that role unless there was, unless, you know, there was something slightly unhinged in some way. So, uh, although I guess I'm just sort of making a personal comparison because, like, from my point of view, I'm like, well, yeah, that that type of role doesn't really appeal to me. So maybe I'm just generalising and saying, well, anyone who does appeal to it is an absolute psycho. <laughs> Which is probably not <laughs> well, true. Well, I, right
0: I think that uh, psychos are probably generously represented. Yeah, I think in so. The, in that population compared with uh, the regular population. Yeah, yeah.
1: I was just wondering what what was, like, the... If you had to pick one thing about the book, what would it be that stood out for you?
0: I think there were a few a few things that I thought were interesting. Maybe I can't get it down to one, but I'll, I'll try and Boo. keep it to, to not very many. One thing he's talking about is kind of corporate politics, which I think is quite interesting. Hmm. And his observation was that companies, often with very apolitical CEOs, can be very political environments.
1: I guess it depends on what you think of as as politics, for me, it's like a discussion between two people is partially political, isn't it? At work, because you both got things you want to achieve and you know agendas that you bring, so you can't help it. I think there's. Are you when people say politics like that? Do you just mean like bad behaviour? If you know what I mean, scheming. He, he did rather than politics.
0: Yeah. yeah, maybe. I mean, his he he kind of his definition was around people advancing their careers or agendas by means other than merit and contribution. Any of that kind of underhanded. I I certainly think. Scheming. Yes. Let's, let's go with scheming. I don't think he was against people talking to each other and working together. I think it was just the, the negative aspects of, of the way that happens, which I think was, and he had some quite, there was some quite good sort of content about, that so things like um what should you do if somebody comes and asks you for a pay rise what uh ben horowitz was his point was that if you give someone a pay rise because they ask you for one then you're basically he, he would say you're encouraging you'll be encouraging behaviors where people are doing stuff for themselves and not for the good of the company and he so he saw that as something that actually can produce Political behavior
1: I guess it depends on the on the reason doesn't it? because if you've been historically underpaying, then that's one thing. I've seen a few examples where a company has been historically underpaying and then people have turned up and said, "Hey, you should be paying me a bit more." And it's like, well you know you're not doing it for the good of the company
0: One of the things he's very passionate about in in his writing is about making a company a good place to work so that the people that work there will go to work and feel fairly rewarded and will find it, you know, that it's possible for them to reasonably do their work and, and to, you know, to not be beset with obstacles that <laughs> that prevent them all the time. All of those kinds of things. I think, I mean, the thing about pay rises, it, I guess, was part of that. You know, having a, a, a less political company was kind of part of that. Yeah. Another thing that was interesting, actually, Sorry. sorry? Uh, do you want to talk no, about no, that a little on. bit more? So another thing I thought was interesting um, was his um, he he's very interested in making sure that people do that companies train people and there's kind of a it was quite interesting actually because he was giving an example of uh, he was when he was running a company and he he basically rolled out some management training which he delivered where he's basically saying telling the managers this is what is a good manager this is what a bad manager looks like and by the way it's absolutely imperative that you do one-to-ones with all of your reports every week or every two weeks or whatever it was and he basically mandated that for all his managers and then he's telling the story that he discovered that this particular manager had not talked to any of his reports for like six months and he... Sort of thought about how to handle this, and what he actually in the end did was that he got that person's manager to come come to him, and then he had a conversation with him where he was kind of outlining, he was kind of saying, "Why do you think I come to work?" And um, there was a lot of toing and froing about various various answers and theories and things. But what, what he was saying was, he comes to work. But the thing that motivates him is making the company a good place to work, and. By the way, did you know that this manager that reports to you hasn't spoken to any of his reports for for six months? Yeah. And by the way, if if he hasn't spoken to all of them in the next 24 hours, then you and him are both going to be fired.
1: As a manager, your one-to-one is probably one of the few tools that you actually have to influence things, assuming that you're not hovering over every task that every of your direct reports is always doing, because otherwise... That, that signals like yeah. omnipotence and psychosis. <laughs> but the whole—I um, mean, I suppose there's, there's a bit of a there's a cultural thing. Is—is is this in the US?
0: Well, uh, yeah. I mean, that's the context. It's Silicon yeah. Valley, yeah. Isn't so it's it?
1: the there's something there, isn't there? Because like, obviously, in the in the UK, this whole—you know—you do this or you'll be fired within 24 hours—isn't really a thing.
0: And <laughs> yes, do do this or we will begin a disciplinary process that will take the rest of our exactly. natural lives. And you
1: have the right to appeal and you have the right to, uh, be, represented the right to uh, be represented and you have the right to bring a union in. <laughs> All the things that stop really crazy stuff, like two people being fired, <laughs> summarily happening. But yeah, it's a it's very different, different culture, isn't it? Yeah. The training very thing much. is quite weird as well, isn't it? I, I mean, I do agree. Like when I first started out as a manager, I was just like, here's some people manage... And it was like, uh, <laughs> yeah. okay, what, what, yeah. what? I had that too. What does that mean? So I went and um, I found a podcast called uh, Manager Tools and started listening to it. And part of it, it was, it was like corporate America. So there was some of that strange, "I'm going to fire you tomorrow," uh, sort of <laughs> rhetoric in there. But some of it was actually really good, and it talked about, you know, how to do a one to one, or at least how to put a framework around it. And the importance of, of a one-to-one because they're the only tools that you really have in order to, mm. to influence proceedings and how to use them to talk about the future as well as what you need to do now. That was really good. And I think that would be a a, a welcome benefit to lots of new managers, especially, to get some guidance on that. That's a, that's a good thing for a company to do because there's probably lots of managers like me or new managers like me and like you when you were a new manager but it was like, yeah. oh, I've got no idea what I'm doing, but also I can't be seen to not know what I'm doing in some ways. I need to, you know, <laughs> I need to look convincing. And you kind of piece it together for yourself. So it's really nice, I think, that a company like, puts value on that pastoral care and career development that you get from a really good manager. So that's good. Mm. But, you know, to, to go six months without speaking to your direct reports.
0: Yeah, but yeah. What, what, what does that say to them? <laughs> it's just terrible. There can be many things going
1: on there as well, can't they? Might have an especially difficult direct report or set of direct reports. Not saying that you should avoid it, but there's always an explanation if you want to dig deep enough. Or you could just fire them the next day.
0: I think I, I think though that saying something to reinforce, doing some and saying things to reinforce his very strong feeling that one to ones are very important is very good. I mean, obviously from a cultural point of view and from you know, legal and other points of view, we might not do it here by saying, "Right, you're all fired if they don't fix it tomorrow." But nonetheless, something really quite, quite firm to say this is a big priority for me, and it must be for you as the people that work for me. Yeah, I think is actually uh, was is is a good thing yeah. for him to have done. Could have just said that, couldn't he? he Ian,
1: I like what you just said. I prefer that too. Right? <laughs> I prefer that to your fire to tomorrow if you don't sort this out
0: you know? I, I'm probably unfairly abridging what he actually said but um, <laughs> uh, yeah I mean I, I think your your point about it, you know the Silicon Valley culture being quite different to what you know the world yeah. we both live in is, is, um, is a very good one
1: yeah and it is interesting the point about like wanting to climb as well because when I look back on my, my own career I climbed for a while and then got disinterested in climbing but got ambitious in other ways Mm. it's always interesting to hear like counterpoints and uh, like different paths and how a ceo might deal with if they you know if you have a culture where people are trying to climb it's a dangerous place isn't it i guess i guess that's what he's saying yeah it can have some serious like negative effects on on your culture because the climbing becomes it becomes at someone's expense, doesn't it? You're climbing on top of, not assisting. If it goes to its, it's you know the worst conclusion that it could go to. Mm. So yeah, that's um, it's it's a it's a really interesting point um, because I guess to create a culture where it's just all sort of naked ambition, it sounds really terrifying, doesn't it?
0: It does. Yeah. We could talk a lot more about all the different things in here. He makes some interesting points about scaling and he's got this whole th- philosophy about rather than not, r- rather than suffering from the problems of scaling, you just kind of try and hold them at bay so they happen more slowly. And he's got all these different stuff that he says about that. He talks about organisation and designing an organisation. And that was really interesting because it's about um, starting off not from... What divisions do people have and who are the people I want to be in charge of them? It kind of starts off from what needs to be communicated and, and what knowledge is there that has to be shared um, and what decisions will have to be made often. And then yeah. only then getting to, um, to, to who runs what. And I, I, I thought that was very interesting and talks about process as a, a method of communication which I thought was yeah. again a very interesting perspective. There's there's a, an awful lot in there, and I guess uh, I've stretched the definition of one thing quite far. <laughs> yeah. Well, the book <laughs> but, is
1: one thing, to be fair, and I do think that there's there needs to be more like positive examples of scaling hmm. because um, I think a lot of Attempts to scale, are th- often there's like sort of thinly veiled empire building attempts oh. or c- consultants with frameworks making grabs at things. So yeah. I think a positive model for that is really good. And I quite like that it's kind of built around like where does the knowledge and the skill sit rather than, you know, and how does it make sense to align ourselves rather than just going straight, straight in with a framework or just saying, well you know let's just hire 70 devs and let them fight it out <laughs> uh, but I can I could say that I've got an organization with 70 developers in it. There definitely does need to be more positive examples of of how to do that because it's, it's like the big challenge now is it yeah you know you make a team work in a way that in a way that suits your business but then how do you do that five times ten times I don't know. So positive examples of that would be great.
0: Yeah, and, and he, does, he talks a lot about that. The other thing he says is quite interesting is that he sort of talks about the trade-offs of organizational of designing an organization. Mm. And he basically says, whatever, however you do it, people are going to criticize you and they're going to yeah. be right because you just can't. So you also have to look at, well, okay, so for, I don't know, I put marketing in the same division as the product teams rather than sales. Yeah, um, and therefore now I have to think about what could go wrong between marketing and sales that I need to, to mitigate somehow.
1: They'll come up with like really wild dreams about products that could be uh, and how to sell them, and then start selling them before they're even built. That's what that would never there. happen. It's already happened. It's <laughs> happening every for, day,
0: except for all the time, apart <laughs> from all product <laughs> decisions ever. Um. <laughs> yeah. So I, I. Recommend this book. Uh, I, mm. I I'm recommending it as someone who's reading it, not because I think I'm going to be the a, a CEO of some scaling startup. Yeah. I don't. I didn't read it from the point of view of being. Uh, I do find it interesting because of its organizational design implications and and the discussion of of why some things are done in the way they are, which is which is yeah. interesting. And it kind of joins on a, in a funny way to team topologies, which we. Uh, we talked about in episodes of your that was great great episode that was that that without having ever read it it still lives with me as something i think about a lot and eventually i will read okay well that was that was my thing can can we remember how we do this what the transition between between two things
1: i think we put in like a comedy side effect wouldn't we sound effect not side effect (laughs) side effect comedy side (laughs) effects Uh, so <laughs> there's many. something
0: to be explored there, isn't there?
1: But then Ash comes in with a segue, saying, "Oh, hey, I've got a thing as well." Oh,
0: that sounds that sounds familiar. Actually, that sounds like the yeah. kind of thing we do.
1: Yeah, yeah, just kind of burst in. I will change the oh, whole re- tone of it <laughs> <laughs> away from hard things to really easy things. Things that are yes. dead easy to
0: achieve. Just e- easy, uh, easy things. The easy thing about easy things.
1: These, yeah my book is the easy thing about easy things the great thing about easy things is that they're so easy
0: yes yeah
1: and if you can't achieve them then that's your problem yeah yes yes <laughs> sorry i'm sounding on ben horowitz there if you can't achieve them and you're fired tomorrow there you go you can play the role too
0: i i feel i've uh i feel i've i've harshly um edited what he said. I feel as though yeah. it is probably yeah. Uh, That's okay. Probably not as bad as I'm I'm apparently making out. <laughs> What's the next thing, Hash?
1: So, so I tried to keep it topical and the State of DevOps twenty twenty one report has come out.
0: Not even twenty twenty or twenty nineteen.
1: Twenty twenty. We skipped twenty twenty. There was no DevOps in twenty twenty.
0: Literally the bleeding edge of twenty twenty one.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, uh, twenty twenty has been consigned <laughs> to the void. So,
0: it was in a state. Yeah, well, yeah, that's
1: true. Actually, <laughs> so this uh, this this report kind of piqued my interest because um, it talks about having an internal platform team, and the gist of this was that you kind of have these middle-performing organisations. The State of DevOps reports define organisations by certain criteria in terms of like. Well, I guess the big four, the number of deploys and the mean time to recovery and cultural and all kinds of other measures. Mm. And it describes this problem with these middle performing organizations who've attempted a a DevOps transformation and they've sort of floundered a little bit. Maybe gone back to the original habits, having just an ops ops team,
0: for example. Did they they create a, a DevOps team? Is that how they did it?
1: And apparently the, the State of DevOps report says that if you have a successful platform team and this is literally it can get them out of their funk.
0: Oh, wow. So read
1: that however you like. And I think this was kind of interesting to me because I've, in, the, in the last couple of years, I've worked at places with a few different sort of patterns of platform teams. So I kind of recognized a bunch of the, the symptoms in the report that they talk about.
0: Can, um, can we zoom out quickly what, sure. what do we mean by platform in this context, and what do we mean by platform team?
1: The internal platform, and this is a, the definition used in the report, so it's a foundation of self-service APIs, tools, services, knowledge, and support. Delivery teams can make use of the platform to deliver features with reduced handoffs. <laughs> so that <laughs> might be like container orchestration tooling or observability tooling or knowledge management, making sure that it's well understood what a particular service does and what how to, how to assist it if it fails. And then also trying to push along like organizational objectives. Like, I don't know, you want your teams to have more test automation in their pipeline or something like that. It's quite a wide remit is the only thing that strikes me.
0: I was slightly entertained when you were speaking there because I... Wanted to answer this question about what do we mean by by these things. So I I googled and I I found myself on uh, Martin Fowler's website, who is a very learned gentleman of of IT delivery, and something big at ThoughtWorks, and uh, he in his um, in his blog had written a definition of of, of what a uh, a platform is in this context, and you'll be. Amused to hear that his definition on his blog post was a digital platform is a foundation of self service APIs, tools, <laughs> services, knowledge, and support, which are arranged as a compelling internal product. So
1: there's some alignment there between whoever wrote, whoever put that, those words in the report, and uh, Martin Fowler. To be fair, if you're going to be aligned with someone, Martin Fowler's not too bad, right?
0: No, no, um, agreed. It does go yeah. on to say that autonomous delivery teams can make use of the platform to deliver product features at a higher pace with reduced coordination. There you go. You see? So a strong divergence at the end there between coordination yeah. and handoffs.
1: Yeah, I prefer coordination. <laughs> but one of the things that... So they talked about these middle performing organisations and having yes. a, a, a successful platform team can really help. And one of the things that I found really interesting about that was that any blockers, if you state them as cultural... That's not helpful, as culture is thought of as immutable. Mm. So if you said, um, I'm going to pick on testers because I'm a tester, the testers always want to do lengthy release regression testing before anything goes out, because there's like a culture of doing that. It's just found it really interesting that that statement, especially the culture is thought of as immutable. So I don't know. I guess I, I, I think it probably has... I think culture has drag about it. It takes time to change, but I don't know if I've ever thought about it as immutable. What do you think?
0: That's, I mean, that is really interesting. I mean, changing culture is hard, but actually I think what you, the kind of thing you're doing when you're trying to implement some of these kinds of things is that you're changing behaviours. If you change enough behaviours, then culture with a lag will follow Mm. on behind, especially if you're, changing things in such a way that people are being enabled by it yeah. and so that instead of feeling that the changes are impeding work the changes are making work easier and better then yeah. i think in the end that will change culture but i mm. think it's the behaviours and the the other things around that that you have to yeah. start with
1: so i just found that a very sort of interesting statement it seemed a bit i kind of hope Culturally, obviously, I acknowledge, always acknowledge that it can take a long time to change something like that. But I have a, I have a hopeful feeling that it can change and, that, and for the better as well. I try not to think of it as immutable.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's a thing that humans do where we have ways of labelling things to get people to accept a set of assumptions about them. And you see this often in um, Twitter mobs and things like that, where if we call you this thing and we can get a number of people to agree that you're this thing, then we can treat you in a particular way or it's okay to do particular. uh, I I mean, I I don't want to dive into any of those rabbit holes, but I think saying that something is cultural is is almost a way of saying, and we can't change that, so let's not bother thinking about it. I think it's a way of labeling it in a way that means that it's unchangeable or or maybe someone else's job. So I I think that may be a bit of an excuse to do that or a bit of a yeah a get out. The other bit that intrigued me
1: as well was about those organizations like in the in the middle performing layer being much more Well, it kind of intrigued me because I didn't particularly agree with it. So basically saying they're risk averse. So they, and specifically it called out being scared of a continuous delivery approach, which I assume that they mean trying to get one piece flow often from idea to production or however you want to, however you want to describe it. It's kind of false risk aversion, I guess is my disagreement with it because it's like, well, by storing up your releases, obviously you're storing up your risk as well. That argument needs kind of flipping on its head a bit. You need to redefine the risk. The risk is not releasing, not releasing, not not
0: releasing. Yes, (laughs) I kind of get that, but I think that that their fear, the fear comes from you need some things in place to do continuous delivery. Hmm. So you need your good, solid, automated testing, for example. Yeah. You need... You need a, a reliable back-out mechanism that can back things out as quickly as they, they get put in. And when you're sitting in a brownfield kind of situation with some horrible legacy app, then the mountain to climb to put those things in place, when people come and say, oh, just start doing continuous delivery, it, it, I, I always feel a bit as though it's more complicated than that. And actually, it yeah. is possible to start doing continuous delivery and it to be a catastrophe because you haven't got some of those building blocks in place,
1: yeah. Don't automate it until you understand it, <laughs> um, because like good you'll just be automating your misunderstanding, which you know may work out terribly for you. So I think there is a little bit of that as well. But again, it comes down mm. to like foundational work. Uh, again, that's where the platform team might come in for these organisations as well. But I do think we need to frame the conversation around. Releases and risk a, a bit differently as well. So I, I think agree. stored risk is probably worse than like you know small large stored risk is worse than small released risk. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think there's 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 definitely like there's there's some interesting points within the within the report itself about these middle performing organisations and how do you sort of get to that next level. So all this kind of got me onto thinking around the platform team patterns of my recent past. I've worked with three variants of that pattern. So the first one was the project-driven one. So as in, we will build you a platform, but the project still pays for everything.
0: Oh, no, that's just, that's impossible. Weird sort of clashes,
1: sort of conflicts of interest between delivering the thing for the project while also trying to build a self service platform it didn't work very well you just That's ended up with a yeah you just ended up with an ops team who felt under the cosh all the time project teams were just asking them for stuff all the time and then you didn't have access to anything and it was just it was just horrendous
0: yeah it it's the incentives are just terrible because project managers want to uh, reduce costs of their projects so they, so they say. Well, we're not going to use this platform because that's an extra cost, and we haven't budgeted for it. And meanwhile, the oh, it's just, it's just all the incentives make it doomed to fail if you make the projects pay for it.
1: I mean, that kind of speaks to the like the the cultural part as well, doesn't it? It's like, well, we've yeah. always paid for things in projects. That's that's a really tough one to overcome. I do have a lot of, you know, if I was tasked with setting up a platform team in a project-based organization. I would think twice, to be honest, about doing the job because it would be incredibly hard. Uh, so the second pattern was hidden within delivery teams, platform teams. I like this one. So we had like a, <laughs> a, like a couple of platform engineers who were just hiding on scrum teams doing platformy things while product people like stopped the corridors looking for people to build features, asking what everyone was doing. And there, were, like we were just going like distract the product people with I don't know shiny things. Um, so that was a really interesting one as well. It was kind of a way to get the thinking established, at least. Hmm. So I guess for me, one of the things with platform teams is that you want you want to, in principle, you want to help the delivery teams or the the product teams take as much ownership as possible, not hang on to the ownership. It was a slightly nefarious way of trying to get that thinking going, but it wasn't too bad because they were on the teams as well, which I think is quite a big a big yeah. thing too. It
0: it seems as though maybe if you're going to evolve into a platform team, that's where you'd start. Is is you'd be seeing projects doing things which really really helped other projects, and and maybe feeling as yeah. though actually if we funded this separately. And made it an official line of work that we do. That we do. Then, you know, you you're saying, well, we could have this benefit that we've already had, but multiplied up, and that kind of is a bit of a business case for it as well.
1: And then the final one was individual as a platform. Oh dear. So in team topologies, they talk about the thinnest viable platform, but you know, having one person doing all the all of that sort of work. <laughs> Yeah, I, that, that just doesn't work, does it? You know? And it's like a, it's like an emotional disaster, a <laughs> mental disaster for that person as
0: well, and probably a
1: physical disaster for that person it, as well.
0: Harks back to Brent in the Phoenix Project, who who was...
1: Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? It's like the classic individual as a platform. like no, But you're not... It's a, a, everyone's waiting for you to yes, do stuff.
0: You become a bottleneck in, in an extreme yeah, way. And
1: uh, you're not sharing. I think... Um, one of the things that that nags me a bit about platform teams is that you need like unicorns, or at least one or two unicorns, mm. to make it work. So you want to treat it as a like a product, right? So it's got like goals and KPIs and all those other things. Yeah, I think you need a, a sort of relatively special type of product owner, if you like, for a platform team. You know, that has like the technical mm. chops to do it. And also has an understanding of what makes a great product, and you know how to uh, research your users and find out what they need and all that. It just sounds like those types of endeavors need some fairly hard to come by people. Is kind of what always springs to mind for me when I think about platform teams.
0: <laughs> it is hard to hire a lot of those those kind of people unless you're a very uh, very big cool company in some way but it yeah i think it is interesting actually i think you have to look at it i mean effectively the developers are your users and you have to understand them and empathize with them and do all the things that you do when you're looking at your end users and how your products are helping them it's the same there's no no difference i mean design thinking absolutely applies in that scenario yeah, because that's one of
1: the things that that's talked about a lot in certainly in team topologies and in uh, in the state of DevOps report is like the developer experience mm-hmm. and trying to improve that because you know there's some pretty frustrating developer and well and tester experiences <laughs> yeah. out there you know where you feel like you can't make that much of a difference everything is kind of behind behind a, a locked door and there's certain people who have certain amounts of knowledge that you need but it's very hard to get that out of them. So you end up with a lot of inertia in your role, which can be quite frustrating. So I think that improving that developer experience, again, it's, it's turning the, these concepts, platforms, platform as a product, developer experience, into real things, isn't it? And that's where you need your, your product knowledge hmm. as well, or at least your ability to go and, you say, empathize with your users and find out what they want and what they're frustrated about and spend some time with them, and which again, in my experience of existing platform teams, that's been the thing that hasn't really been there. It's just always been, yeah, we could spin up a a billion AWS instances. (laughs) And I'm like, so? But, you know, I can do that. (laughs) What are you trying to solve the problems that we we really have? You know, what do you want to know? Do you want to come and work, you know, pair with me while I test and see what see what's going on? You know, see where the pipelines fail, see where there's bottlenecks or you know incomplete environments you know components missing whatever it is or environments that haven't scaled as much as they as as they should to become a a, a decent load test you know all those types of things so it's um it's very much like turning it into like that, that product product mindset rather than just a we're going on to aws mindset
0: i maybe it's not at all relevant but i've always struck by this quote that um Bill Gates allegedly said. So when um Facebook back in the whenever it was was going through its various funding rounds and it got to this kind of 15 billion dollar one, you know, it's the big one. They were all going on about how they're a platform this and that and the other and Bill Gates apparently said, that's a crock of shit. this isn't a platform. A platform is when the economic value of everybody that uses it exceeds the value of the company that creates it. Then it's a platform. Yeah. And I guess I'm quoting that because I feel as though it somehow applies to this. But I, there's quite a lot of mapping to do <laughs> between a team inside a. I, I feel like that is for a platform team to be really succeeding. That's the kind of thing it it, it needs to be able to point to.
1: Yeah, I think the um, the thinking behind that quote is it is sound mm. thinking to me, and I, I would I would agree with that as part of like having a uh, putting the effort into the platform. You want it to be uh, greater than the sum of its parts, don't you? You want it to be so that every team is self-serving themselves with what they need yep. when they need it. If you're still serving them, then in the project-driven platform team, the platform team just got bigger and oh, bigger. Yeah. Like literally up to like
0: 100 platform Oh, engines. no. Yeah. That's not a team. It's a, a loose confederation of warring tribes. Um.
1: So the report uh, talks about three ways of improving things. It said, do the five whys with your leadership. It was like,
0: or at least do right. as many whys as you can before they get, you get fired.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then, and then duck. Yeah. The five whys with Ben Horowitz. Why am I fired? So, and then man. the second one was take a long look at who you hire mm. and their attitudes. I mean, that's kind of uh, evergreen oh, advice really? really, isn't it? And then they kind of mentioned, like you said, you know, like you said about having like a, an application that's been hanging around for a while. It's just like a nudge in the right direction with a little bit of improvement over time. One thing I quite like is the 70-30 principle for features versus making the work work better. The most successful teams are spending at least 30% of their time on making the work work better. Again, it's it's good advice and we, I think we as, certainly we as sort of technologists and uh, and technology leaders probably need to get a bit better at selling it because I've worked on far too many teams where it's like, technical debt, that's the developer's <laughs> problem, not the product's problem, you know? It's like, well, that's your problem. It's like, oh, there was a system outage at the weekend. The technical teams are taking a good hard look at themselves yeah. as to why this happened. There they are, stood in the
0: corner right over there, oh, uh, thinking about what they've it, done. It,
1: yeah, exactly. It's so, like, well, we were kind of all involved in this outage, actually, <laughs> when you think about it. All of our decisions led to it. But again, it's it, these are the things that I think we always struggle to sell. Yeah. So yeah, I really enjoyed the State of Devils report. It kind of spoke to my recent experience with platform teams as well, which made uh, made me smile, wistfully. No, I
0: think that's a, that is a great thing. And um, it's... It's very deep as well. I feel sure we could probably talk about it for another, mm. another three hours. So uh, sit back and relax, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> We're in for the long haul. That was a great thing. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. I enjoyed that.
1: Got a lot of things off my chest there. Hey, <laughs> bell's released. <laughs> Whew, can breathe oh, again that now. That be nice. Okay, so that was two things. That was two things. And just two weeks after we initially promised yes, to do episode six. Approximately. But this is the joy of, uh, of doing testing, right? Because as a tester, you don't have to estimate anything. You just ask how long you've got.
0: <laughs> and, and, and then they reduce it. And you do some testing.
1: Yeah, and then you do some, a little bit less testing. And then you go home, you put your feet up, job well done. The world falls apart around your ears. <laughs> but you think, well you know, my estimate wasn't wrong, was it? I asked you exactly how long I had. <laughs> yeah. It was your estimate that was wrong. <laughs> yes, you <laughs> See I've cracked it. Estimation. There you go. Hashtag test estimates.
0: You heard it here first.
1: <laughs> you <laughs> You heard it here first and yes. last.
0: <laughs> there'll be there'll be a book about <laughs> estimating that we will write <laughs> They'll come out shortly, I estimate in two weeks time. <laughs> it's just a slightly hollow laugh there. Okay. Yeah. So what do we have to say? What do what what do we what did we used to say when it was the end of the episode aside from bold claims about when the next episode would come out?
1: There will be no claims. <laughs> We decided on no yes. claims, didn't we? Ian? And
0: in fact, uh, perhaps if we do that, then yeah. we can have a no claims bonus.
1: No claims bonus. We can we can get each other a a bigger, yes. a bonus for making yes. no claims and not not buying into the the you know military industrial estimation complex well, that controls our lives. Nobody wants to buy into
0: them. Ian's life. <laughs> a bit harsh but okay so we we have quite a pile of things anyway we have accumulated yeah. a yeah. number of things since the previous episode um, and so there will be more episodes but we're just not going to say when yeah, because cool. you know we've learned our lesson I've learned my lesson, <laughs> yes, learned lesson. brilliant All right. Right. I think we're done.